John, how can you always have the right TV for the right application without carrying hundreds of valves on your truck? You can carry the hundreds of valves on a trailer behind your truck. That's too funny. That would work, but how are you gonna do that? Maybe there's an easier way. You can use Sporland's interchangeable cartridge style Type Q and Type BQ uh, TEVs. Type Q is a conventional design and Type BQ is a balanced port TEV. Well, come on, I need easy. How easy is it? Uh, easy as one, two, three. And it serves thousands of unique applications. So what's the process? How do I put this together? First, you select the thermostatic element assembly. Then you select the body that you need. Then you select the right size cartridge for the application to get the proper capacity TEV for your application. And then I guess it should also be said you want to actually assemble those into a single valve. That'd probably be a good idea. These easy to select and assemble valves mean you're always carrying the right valve for the right job then. If folks want to learn more, what do they do? Uh, you can go to sporland.com and find more information on the Type Q and BQ thermostatic expansion valves. I guess that's Jim and John for Sporland signing off. Hello guys, this episode is brought to you by Fieldpiece. Fieldpiece's next generation of vacuum pumps will cut down on evacuation time and make oil changes on the fly a breeze. They are lightweight, durable, and feature four inline ports plus a large oil reservoir. Get pumped about these three new Fieldpiece vacuum pumps available at distributors now. Learn more at Fieldpiece.com or follow us on social media at Fieldpiece Products. Thanks again and thanks for listening. Alright guys, question number three for the month of August. What is the pressure and temperature at which CO2 becomes supercritical? Let me know. Send me the answer to ARPgiveaways at gmail.com. Have a great day. We've all been there in the middle of a job, everything going smoothly until boom, you're missing a part. United Refrigeration is your one-stop shop for all your refrigeration needs. Use your computer or smartphone to go to www.uri.com at any time of the day or night to check stock on your favorite brands, such as Copeland, Sporlin, Carlisle Compressors, Danfoss, Emerson CPC boards and sensors, Corel, Hussman parts, and Ketotherm. United Refrigeration Inc. is home to these brands and many more. Looking for information on refrigerant conversions or refrigerant banking? Quick access links on the homepage can get you to the information you need. All approved accounts are able to see live to the minute inventory and pricing. Product not in stock at your local branch? No problem. Use the nearby stock feature to find a local branch that does have what you need. Are you looking for a branch address, phone number, or after hours number? That's all available as well. Just click on the branch locator and search for your local branch. Have a model number and looking for a replacement part? www.uri.com forward slash ARP has a vast list of quick pick replacement parts. Just search for the model number of the equipment you're working on and click the Replacement Parts tab. If you don't have an account, click the Register button and we'll have you online in no time. With more than 400 locations in North America, each United Refrigeration branch is fully stocked for immediate pickup. Our branch employees have in-depth technical knowledge so we can help you get what you need when you need it. Visit your local store or www.uri.com forward slash ARP today. United Refrigeration Inc. has all your solutions down cold.
Hey y'all, hey, what's going on everybody? Welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. You're the host, Brett Wetzel and Kevin Compass. You got you guys got about 20 minutes. Kevin's gotta talk about some stuff. Take it away, Kev. No, if I go on a rant, you're gonna yell at me. Uh, well, I mean I can I can edit. That's fine. Yeah, that's way too much editing at this point <laughs> for, for how mad I am right now. Is it really that bad this week? Oh yeah. Why? Yeah. Because people don't do their jobs. Is it is it they don't do their jobs or are they are they uneducated on what they're working on? That's both. <laughs> it's both. Yep. Why why do you say that? Because nobody cares anymore. Do you think it's because everyone's toast? Because it's it's you know, it's been plus a hundred degrees everywhere for the past two months. Yep, and everybody can take these SLAs and sh- no, I was just talking about that, and, and that's one of the reasons why guys are you know, so much toast is, you know, hey, you need to be here in three hours. Okay. And you got three stores down, so we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there as soon as we can, right? Oh, you missed your SLA time. You're you're getting a fine. Yeah, it's it, it it's getting kind of bad with that. I, that's one thing I'm just, and I don't know. I just I don't I don't agree with with how demanding some. I mean, like if it, like if rack down, I get it. You know what I mean? But if you have one case down, pull it. You got to walk in cooler. You got to walk in freezer. Oh, SLA for a two hour, two hour for a uh, water leak at three o'clock in the morning. Like, all right, that one on board, that one on borderline on, are you talking on the floor or are you talking in, in the, in the kit or like, you know, walk in? Like, it doesn't matter. It's three yeah, no, it does. Nobody's uh, well, in the store. Well, they just want to make sure that you get there right at 6 a.m. then. Well, how is the call getting generated then? Because, I mean, how do you have a water leak on the floor at 3 o'clock if there's no one there? Talking, but, like, there's nobody, there's no customers there. I'm sorry. It's a water leak. Put put a cone up. Yeah, but it's an insurance problem. Call a plumber. Not if it's the case leaking. That's our problem. Yeah, well, just vacuum the water out of it then. Clean your cases. There's There's no reason that somebody should potentially die on the way to a call for a water leak. So I have a question for you. Are you working with the service department this week or are you working, you're working your normal digs? I am like in between both because we have like no construction work. Really? Yeah. There's no cases because, you know, manufacturers don't make cases anymore. They just make promises that they're going to make cases. You know, so I'm, I'm dealing with that right now. Um, There's a store that, that needs help with, with a startup and, they're like, well, when can we start the the the, the medium temp side? I was like, the medium temp side will, will run by itself without any caseload. But if you want to, you know, start doing the rest of the transcritical, you got to have at least 30 percent of the of the load for the medium temp in order for for anyone to open up the the low temp side. And he's like, well, that might be a problem. I'm like, why? He's like, well, because I think we have like seven percent of the medium temp load. I'm like, mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. We're doing the same thing. We just got all the cases last week, and they want to start the rack uh, on Monday. Yeah, that that's that. It's that's Friday the... at eight p.m. Did anyone go through the wiring at all? Oh God, no! Really? 
No, I meant... <laughs> I meant <laughs> with the company that you worked for. No one went there to ch- check out the wiring and shit? Check out what wiring? Every the case? Wiring... No, the wiring on the rack before they started up. Well, it's all going to be wired wrong no matter what. Well, <laughs> Pretty hard to check on the wiring when you got no controller. Oh, really? So the wait, wait, the rack's wait, the rack doesn't have a controller either. The rack showed up with no boards. <laughs> I shit you not. That is retarded. Yep, we had sent all used boards out of another store. <laughs> so how well do you think that's gonna work? <laughs> what are we talking about? Like microthermal or or uh, or CPC? Yes, CBC. <laughs> Bust Literally, out the com troll time. <laughs> it's just like a it's just like a fucking the whatever. Yeah, because I'm sure every one of those boards is good. I got a bunch of them yet somewhere. I have I have I have a lot of them if anybody wants to buy them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So let's 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 hop into this before I just fall asleep because I'm exhausted. Um let, let, let's hop into this. We're going to go over starting up tra- uh, the first part of starting up transcritical racks. Like anything, obviously safety. Everybody makes this into this like huge ordeal that you're going to kill yourself. I mean, it's not very much different than a normal DX refrigerant. It could still blow up. I mean, you just got to take precautions. Don't trap liquid, yada, yada, yada. Dry ice is like half of a myth. I mean, you're not going to make dry ice. It's in unless you're pumping on a liquid shell or a receiver or something like that. I mean, you're not going to purposely make dry ice. They, they make it out to be more of an issue than it really is. You know, it's like a, like stop, drop and roll when you're like a kid. They make it seem like you're going to use that all the time. <laughs> so, I use the, when I was younger, I had to use the Mr. Yuck a couple of times though. My parents would leave stuff out all the time. It makes a lot of sense the way you are. <laughs> so, all right. Um, we'll start this up. Like, first things first, guys, is once it's piped, you need to make sure it's it's good. So, meaning you need to start pressurizing. So, you need to isolate the gas cooler and the TC side of the compressors from everything else. So, you're going to close the ball valves. You're going to remove the reliefs. And you're going to pressurize the gas cooler up to like whatever the customer says. I usually go 18, 1900 pounds. I go right under what the reliefs on the compressors are for. So if the compressors on reliefs are like, say, 2000 pounds or 1900 pounds, I'll go like 100 pounds under those because I'm not capping off the compressors. That's that's way too much work <laughs> for another 100 pounds. I mean, it's if it's if it's going to blow at 1900, it's going to blow at 2000. You know, it's, 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 I'm not well, really worried. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't, because the medium temp, um, our low temp compressors have different reliefs on them. Don't you have to, don't you have to, uh, separate that from the system? Because that's not, that's going to be at a, the reliefs on the compressor are going to be at a way higher pressure on the suction side. You're muted. The transcritical, you're only doing the transcritical side, the TC side. So it would be the medium temp compressor discharge on all the way down to the drop leg. So okay. you're going to blow up. 
Um, if you don't have a hydraulic hose, I mean, you can go get a hydraulic hose made. They're cheap. Like, they're cheap. Hydraulic hoses are – I mean, you can get them at any hydraulic place. I usually use that, or you can use 3-8 copper. 3-8 copper is going to, like, way higher birth rating than you're ever going to get. So 3-8 soft copper, just run it down to the, the skid pack. You're going to have to use, a, a like, a 12-pack of bottles. And you're going to need, like, two extra bottles on the side. Because you're going to equalize what you're going to get out of the skid pack, and that's it. And then you're going to have to use the two remaining bottles to get it up that high. I mean, we, we did a rack of 2,000 pounds. It took, like, almost two skid packs and, like, uh, a couple spare bottles just to get it up high enough. Because once you, you hit that, that spot where you're not getting any more pressure on the bottle, you're done. you got to move on to a new bottle. And there's only 2,000 pounds in those bottles. So... You want to get it up as high as you can get it. I usually just take a nitrogen regulator. I take the fucking regulator off and I just screw it into the tank. And you have the pipe fitting coming out. And I just put a three-eighths pipe, female pipe thread to three-eighths flare adapter. No, on the on the nitrogen regulators, they're they're like a like a cone fitting that goes inside. It goes inside. I just take I just take the regulator off and you end up with like a uh, quarter inch or three, I think it's quarter inch or three eighths piece of pipe stub stuck in it. And I use that to pressurize a rack because you don't want a regulator on there. You just want full bottle pressure. So then you just want the, uh, you just use the hand valve to shut it on and off, get the full bottle pressure up there and then pressurize that. And then you want to see how long it holds. I generally want the EMS on when I'm doing this so I could use the transducers to graph everything. That way I know if I'm losing pressure. And then at the same time, I want to know if I'm coming back down the drop leg, make sure there's no pipe plugs, anything like that. And then I'm going to move on. I'm going to pressurize the other part of the system. So I'm going to bring the other part of the system like 150 pounds below the relief. So if the receiver reliefs are 650s, I'm going to bring them to like 550. And I'm going to let it sit. And I'm just going to pressure test it. I'm testing it. I'm not really testing to see if anything blows on the side. And that, 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 as far as that goes, that's for the medium temp and the low temp. Just let it all go to what the what the receiver pressure is. So I'm uh, just really just checking for leaks at that point. I want to make sure all the uh, leaks, there's no no leaks, nothing. And then I'm going to spend a meticulous amount of time making sure every transducer is tight and on there and not leaking. 80% of the leaks we have are all in the transducers. So before I pull vacuums, I put all the transducers on. And I get them all reading and all set up, make sure they're all reading. And then I make sure that none of them are leaking with pressure on them before I pull vacuums. And I, I'll go around and valve them all on because that is the number other than the number one thing. You want to make sure they're all valved on and reading pressure before on the nitrogen before you do anything. So once, once you get everything pressure tested, let it sit for 24 hours. Pray to God you aren't chasing small little tiny leaks on transducers and packed angle valves and four coils that are aren't brazed up completely that somehow made it out of the factory. Really? Oh yeah. Like U Ben's like not even finished brazed. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, of course you gotta rip the whole case apart because you know all the wires are on that side. And uh I guess you've done this a couple times recently. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> well, well... <laughs> Shit. Yeah, and then 
So once you get all that done, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to make sure you get your 24-hour pressure test and then blow it down. Now, what I do is because every one of these racks is so filthy dirty is I take and uh, I try to blow it down out the, uh, the liquid core. So I'll valve off. Um, I'll valve off the, the liquid shell dryer if it has a liquid shell dryer or the suction shell dryer if it has that. And I will blow all the nitrogen out of that. I'll pull the plate off and I'll blow it down that way. The reason I do this is, is because there is going to be a ton of shit in that tank and the oil separator and everything else. And I want it all to blow out and blow backwards out, out the, uh, out of the, uh, um, suction shell dryer to try to get all the slag and everything else out of there. I can like, you would not believe what's in some of these racks. We found pieces of weld rod, chunks of fucking slag rocks, um, rocks, a rag. I mean, like the, the most welders, <laughs> well, mo- most of the receivers that are, they're getting are just like nasty, dirty, like just vessels. Like, I mean, they're industrial vessels and they are just, they don't clean shit. I mean, it, it's bad. So we, we were sticking magnets on the outside of the shell dryers to, to catch, uh, all the, all the metal. So what I'm just, I'm thinking, all right. So the, uh, the transcript racks you've been seeing, you obviously have to put the suction shells in before you do it, before you do it. Do you do that before the pressure test? So it catches everything in there, or you just try to try to get it out through the, through the suction shell. Suction shell or the liquid shell, depending on what manufacturer it is. Uh, Hill Phoenix is the only one that uses the suction shell dryer. Everybody else uses liquid shell dryers. Um, so it just depends. I mean, I, I, I don't put it in before. I just usually let it all blow out and then just deal with it because it's not going to catch much. And then what I do is I start the vacuum process. Now with me, I want half-inch packed angle valves everywhere. If if they're not there, if we have spare stubs, I put half-inch packed angle valves and I use the blue vac hoses with a, uh, with like a – we have a 32 CFM – uh, Welch pump. It's a uh, like rotary vane vacuum pump. I mean, rotary vane vacuum pumps are the best you could buy, especially the big ones like that. They'll they'll beat a belt drive any day. So what we do is I generally pull the reliefs. So on the flash tank, I will pull the one relief off the relief tree if you have one. Depending the last two racks that I've started up, they had no relief trees. So you blow the relief, you blow the charge. <laughs> No comment. Um, so I will pull the relief and I will thread in usually a half by half, uh, half inch male pipe thread by uh, uh, male flare. And I'll put a Vuvac hose right in there. So that way I'm pulling full flow half inch right off the top of the receiver. And then I'll put one on the suction headers and then I'll put one on the drop leg. And then I'm a discharge on a TC discharge if I can get it. And then you'll you'll pull down the whole rack that way and then couldn't you, couldn't you pull usually how they were piped up couldn't you pull because all of you i don't know the racks that i've seen that typically they put all the release in the, in the same area so you could basically hook up to both of the reliefs uh right you know that do all the sides where all you know where everything is right 
It depends on depends on if they have relief trees and like I've seen a lot of them like hills and put reliefs relief trees in the suctions. So there's no relief trees on there, but like the discharge and the the TC side discharge and the uh, and the receiver, you, you definitely pull both of those and and uh, you'd be surprised how fast it's gonna pull. Pulling on the flash tank is more important than anything because that everything checks backwards towards the flash tank every valve and everything else a lot of everything checks points back towards the flash tank so once you lower the pressure in the flash tank it's going to go backwards are you overriding the uh h hgv and the bgv i usually do not power them up until they're they're mid-seated i don't power them up until vacuums are done okay so i leave those off until vacuums are done okay but if if the if there's a fault, they they automatically open wide up. So, oh, so you could you could potentially just disconnect the transducer, that's connected to the three sweet three twenty six, and then basically it would open up both valves anyway, right? Yeah, I mean the flash gas bypass valve, you really don't care so much about. I mean, because you're already pulling on the suction anyway. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the drop leg. I mean, you can. I usually like. And I'm pulling on different sections that I could throw the micron gauge on there and see where I'm getting my pressure drop at. But then I'll throw the micron gauge one at the rack and then one at the uh, one of the, one of the cases and see uh, where where I got my good vacuum at. So then once once we go through there, you know you're pulling your vacuum. Now you want to start testing everything. You want to start checking pulse valves or EVs and. Uh, driving them open from the case control or driving them closed, making sure that one's right. Check attempt sensors. I do not, you know, go through the rigmarole, like ice test and temp sensors, especially with Emerson stuff or Sporland stuff, anything with a 10,000 ohm transducer or temp sensor, especially on a case controller. I'm not wasting my time with that. They're, they're usually accurate. So what I'm doing is to test them is I will spray them with duster. Just make sure I have the sen- the right sensor. So I'll oh, the up. suction temperature on the suction temperature and the and, okay, gotcha. Air termination, termination. So I'll do all those and I'll go through and I'll take duster, flip it upside down, spray it in the honeycombs, and you're good to go. And then spray it on the suction line. And I'm watching my computer or my iPad, depending on what it is. And I'm going through and I'm checking each case controller individually. Go ahead, Brett. So. So let me ask you, because like there's different ways. So I, I know Kevin's saying he's just grabbing his, his, his tablet. Um, if you're if you are connected to the controller, you can use a team viewer on your laptop to basically communicate or no, not team viewer. Yes, team viewer. You can basically use that so you can see the you know, whatever your computer has. So you can actually connect to your computer as long as your 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 tablet has Wi-Fi. And you can connect to it and see what the controller is doing. And, and for the most part, you can control the controller through the tablet that's working through your laptop. Is that how you do it? Or you do it a different way? It depends. I mean, just watch how you're doing that because uh, you'll get a nasty email threatening a lawsuit if you're uh, not using it for home use and uh, not paying for a license. Really? Oh, yeah. I, I got a real shitty email from them saying that if I didn't buy a license, I was going to be uh, turned into collections, basically, because I was using it for commercial use. Um, yeah. Yeah, you can use right. TeamView. Um, it's, 
I usually just set up a Wi-Fi router so I got my laptop. I'm just walking around the store with it. If it's if it's an E2 or Dan Foss, I'm just walking around the store with it so that way I could easily, you know, I don't have to mess with my phone as much. I could just easily pull up the case controller and then go. <clears throat> I'm going from there. Uh, here lately, it's been the SC3 stuff. So the actual like physical checkout's a lot easier. It's just more of a pain to get them online when you don't have a gateway. Even with even with work, oh, I guess yeah, because there's parameters that have to be set that we can't touch because you need well, to get a password, which takes twelve that, hours. Yes, that's become a problem, and that was a problem all day where they were on a job today, and uh, we're we're integrating the E two on Backnet, and uh, we had to do a bunch of addresses and get a bunch of uh, Backnet IDs, and you need a code, and unfortunately, like there was like seven different date 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 codes in the uh, controller, so. They had to go through and get every find out what every controller was before they could sync the dates up to get the daily passcode for all those dates. Because otherwise it's going to be different. So if no one knows already, you know, the S3C used to have a, a factory password. Um, they don't want you to have that anymore because they don't want technicians putting their fingers in there and changing shit. So they locked it out where you have to call and get you know, a code just like you do with the E2 if you if you don't have the proper access, right? So that's what Kevin's talking about because, you know, there's so many of these S3Cs out there now. They're having a hard time keeping up with the technical support and getting, you know, get, getting everyone answered. So I'm sure a bunch of you guys have sat on the phone for, you know, two or three hours. Yeah, I mean, so that, that's become a little bit of a pain. I mean, hopefully as all these case manufacturers catch up, they're all going to be the same version, so it should be the same. But but those are a lot easier to test because, I mean, obviously you could just hook right up to the tech check app and you could, boom, easily check that case real quick. You know, look at it, see the discharge error, um, see everything else, test the pulse valve, test the EEV, you test it all. So the biggest thing, if you got EEVs, make sure the spore ones with that, with that new collar, I see – probably one in every eight cases with a bent pen. So what the manufacturers will do, they go to put the uh, that M12 collar on there. I think it's what it's called. And they just jam it in there and they end up bending one of the pins. So if you got a valve, I usually just grab them. I'll force them open and force them close and I'll just grab them. And if I can feel the motor moving, I know I'm good. If I don't, then like usually the first thing I'm going to do is pull the pin. And or pull the uh, the collar off and check the pins, and then usually just grab a control screwdriver and pray to God you don't break it off. That duster is actually a pretty badass idea. I've never even freaking thought of that. Yeah, we usually like. I mean, a Costco will they do all the microthermal sensors? Will go through like two cans of duster. Works great. I mean, it it, it it's it got a, like a five second delay, and then all of a sudden it just shoots way down to temp. Like it'll. Even low temp stuff, it'll it you'll see the temp you'll see the temp move. That's so that, that's how I verify them all. I mean, ten thousand ohm transit or temp sensors usually aren't off by like a degree or two. I mean, they're usually you're, not. You're just mostly verifying the you know the placement by just spraying it. The the important ones, the discharge air and the suction one. If it's Novar and it's two thousand ohm transducers. Or like Dan or temp sensors, and they or Dan Foss with thousand ohm. I mean, those are much more susceptible to line loss, like meaning like like wire loss. I mean, for you figure 
how many feet of wire. So you've got you got 500 feet of wire that, that's going to add ohms to that, and that's going to throw off a temp sensor. Well, when it's a thousand ohm temp sensor, when it's a ten thousand ohm temp sensor, I mean, the, it, its effect is a lot less. So, especially when you got case controllers, I mean, you're talking some of these sensors are ten to twenty feet, so you you have no loss whatsoever. Don't tell me to stop doing things. <laughs> As you're talking, all ears click, click, click. Uh, it's a nervous <laughs> twitch going. Uh, so yeah i mean with the case controllers you're gonna have very little loss so you want to make sure all these are correct you want to make sure the defrost relay energizes you want to make sure the fans are all running on the medium temp and the, <clears throat> the fans come on the fans go off in the low temp you want to go through and do all these validity checks before you even start dumping co2 in this thing so you want to make sure everything is good all the transistors read that's why you want to check those under pressure because that's the biggest thing on startup is flood outs. It, because you have temp sensors crossed, transistors not reading, um, case controllers messed up. So you want to get everything online, everything ready to go before you go to do anything. So, and then most importantly, turn the drain heaters on for the, uh, the walk-ins. <laughs> I don't know how many construction jobs this gets missed and like, because the electricians fuck up something and, that gets missed, and then we ice up drain lines. So you want to make sure those are on before I start. I usually start to rack. It's self-regulating heat tape. It's not going to burn up. <laughs> so then what I'm going to do is I'm going to break the vacuum. I'm going to get – I usually take like two or three vapor tanks per rack, and I will put it in right at the uh, flash tank. So right on the flash tank, there's usually a valve you can hook up to. You're going to dump it right in the flash tank. Just open it wide up. Let it rip. Just go straight in the flash tank. I usually just use a black charging hose. So black 3H charging hose. And I'll get it up to about 100, 125 pounds and uh, with vapor. Just let it all kind of settle out and like go out through the cases. And I forgot, you got to put oil on the rack. They don't, wait, 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 really? None of them come in? Yeah, you got you to put oil in the rack. So um, this is what I do with the oil to test everything. So I will take and I will fill up the oil reservoir with as much oil as I can get in there. And there's a line usually feeding off into the uh, the into the into uh, receiver. I'll valve that line off. I'll take a vapor tank of CO2 and I will pressurize the oil reservoir. And the reason I do this is I will force the OMBs or OMCs, or if it's microthermal, I'll force the oil solenoids so that way I could watch them fill. So when compressor one calls to fill, it's filling compressor one. When compressor two calls to fill, it's filling compressor two. So that way I know the oil system's good before I start. I won't put oil in each individual compressor. I will let the reservoir do it and the OMCs do it on their own. And I do that for even DX racks. I, that's how I, I fill those up too. I fill the reservoir up. I put the vapor refrigerant pressure on there and I watch the oil floats fill and I watch everything fill. So that way I could test everything. Go ahead. When are you doing that though? Cause you, you went back to it. So I wasn't sure yeah. what step. I, I do it. I do it as soon as I break the, va the uh, vacuum with vapor. And then okay, so get, get it up to 150 pounds in, in the flash tank and, and everywhere yep. else. And then basically dump some additional vapor into the, into the, into the separator. 
um, where you already have the oil set and overfilled and then basically watch the, you know, because you're pressurizing so much, it's going to start feeding like a normal system because the other part of the system is going to be lower pressure. So you can actually see the oil system run before the pumps have to actually run. Correct. And then oh. you're going to you're gonna put your liquid cores in. Get your liquid cores in if you have them. And then uh, you're going to pull a vacuum on those real quick. And then now you're ready to start charging. Then I'll bring out the liquid. Now you want to make sure before you start charging liquid that you zeroed out the high pressure valve. You force the uh, the uh, flash gas bypass valve and you feel it moving. That you verified all the transistors on the rack. You unplug them, the right one unplugs. You bump start the compressors, meaning like you put a little bit of gas in there and you force a compressor on. Make sure it's wired right. Make sure it's grounded. You test all the inputs and outputs in the rack, the hot gas bypass if it has it, liquid injection if it has it. Go ahead, Brett. Obviously, check all – do yourself a favor. Check the VFD for sure and also check all your uh, high-voltage connections on your compressors. I've yeah, heard I that tor- that's, I torque that's been an issue. Okay. So I, I go through with a torque screwdriver, and I torque every single low-voltage wire – every single uh, high voltage wire, every compressor contactor, everything literally gets torqued with a torque wrench and a torque screwdriver. Every single one's loose. Like probably 80% of stuff is loose. You'd be surprised you start yanking on stuff and and it just comes right out. You know, you want to make sure that um, your oil controls are wired properly. You want to, I generally try to test the high pressure controls, see if I can get them to, uh, you know, close the alarm contact if I can. And then I'm going to go through the programming. I don't care who programmed it. I'm going through it. I'm going to make sure everything is in there. Set points are in there. You know, it doesn't look like it's going to explode. I'm going to go through. And if I have walk-in freezers, I'm going to step those up to 35 degrees. You know, I'm going to set the, take the the setting up to 35 degrees. So it steps them down. And uh, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to shut the low temp pumps off. And I'm going to start charging the flash tank. And I'm going to leave the medium temp uh, liquids off. All the liquids are going to be off at this point. And I'm going to start dumping in the flat. Go ahead. Liquid just out to the cases is off. The rest of the, the, rest of the liquid feeding the liquid injection, um, that's all. That's still going to be running, obviously, right? That off usually. You, you, you won't need it. If you're just yeah. tired charging a flash tank, the vapor is going to be so fucking cold off that you're not going to need it. So what you're going to do is I start charging a flash tank. And... Uh, start getting everything in there. I'll get a little bit of liquid in there. Then what I will do is I will start, I will start dumping it into the, uh, the case side of the actual, uh, line. So I will either a, it, it really depends if, if I can get it all in the flash tank and it's going to take it, then I'll keep dumping it in the flash tank. If I have the ability to feed it out to the cases and let it come back to the compressors, I'll do that because it's way faster. So, so what I've minute. been doing is putting a packed angle valve. Go ahead. Has your has your charging though? You said before you started feeding the the medium temp the medium temp cases. Um, you were just letting the the compressors run on their own because you know basically on a transcritical rack the the medium pull stage should be able to run independently. Correct. Yeah, it'll pull off the top of the uh, flash tank. I've, so, like I said, you're going to start dumping it into the flash tank as much as you can get in there, and then you're going to come a point where you're going to start equalizing out tanks 
and then that's just a waste of liquid. So what I start doing is I dump it in past the uh, flash flash the flash tank isolation valve. So on the other side, if it does not have a valve like a packed angle on the uh, outlet of the flash tank, I always add one. I always add a half inch or three eighths packed angle because if we need to pump that thing down later on, it takes forever if you don't have a big port there to drain out CO2. So then I start, I'll shut the flash tank, I'll let valve, and then I will start charging post that. So just like a normal rack, you're charging down the liquid line, you're letting it all come back to the rack. I'll usually get three balls floating, you know, let it like three balls floating to the point where the compressors are kind of like, you know, just maintaining on their own. And then I'll slowly uh, open the uh, low temp switches, get all the, get all the uh, low temp compressors on, you know, ready to go. And I will slowly start to bring on the, uh, the uh, liquid and to start letting everything flow. And then I'll start turning circuits on, you know, a few at a time. You know, one or two at a time. Go ahead. Just so you guys can envision this, you know, when he's talking about bringing on the medium temp compressors before he starts, um, you know, letting that liquid down in the medium temp cases, a transcritical rack on the, on the high stage on the on the TC side can basically run independent with just pulling vapor directly off of that flash tank. It's essentially enough load for that for that system to continue to run. Now, obviously, you're not going to have every single compressor running but it's enough of a load that it can run independently where you're making sure all the safeties and working on stuff like that before you actually start worrying about the liquid going down in the cases. Yeah, correct. And then I'll start bringing on stuff system by system, you know, one at a time, you know, just bring on uh, a couple systems. And then while you're doing this the entire time, you're monitoring the flash tank pressure and the discharge pressure. You want to constantly keep an eye on that. You want that flash tank pressure to not exceed you know, 500, 550, and you don't want that discharge getting above 13, 1400. So you just want to monitor while you're starting up. If that flash tank starts rising, shut the rack, shut the liquid supply down. Let let it pull on the flash tank and just start pulling the refrigerator down and reduce the pressure. You don't want that flash tank to get wound up and then start blowing reliefs. That's how you blow reliefs. And unfortunately, the customer that me and you were starting, uh, they neglected to put the rack controller on the other side of the store and uh not at the rack so it has made things incredibly difficult oh that's horrible yeah so you're at the mercy of a rack manufacturer that put hardly any gauges on there either well so the the one that that i think that i'm gonna possibly probably gonna be ending up helping is is I believe it's an LMP. Um, so they actually put the controller at the rack. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> hey guys, today's episode is sponsored by Westermeyer Industries Serviceable Oil Floats. Many oil separators contain an oil float to effectively meter separated oil back to the compressors. Westermeyer Industries has taken this concept and perfected it. With their new line of serviceable oil floats. These floats feature an improved design with fewer components, allowing for greater manufacturer consistency and up to 20% increased oil flow versus their legacy models. These floats also feature an integrated magnet to shield the oil path from debris and have been field proven in supermarket applications. Westmeyer Industries 
offer replacement oil floats not only for their own separators, but also cross-compatible models for our competitor oil separators as well. You can find out more about the Westermeyer industry serviceable oil floats by visiting westermeyerind.com backslash floats. Once again, that's westermeyerind.com slash float. Let's get on with the episode. So we'll, we'll see what, we'll see what happens, but um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you're just constantly watching that flash tank pressure. I mean, just as you're starting things up and you're watching for floodback, just like a hawk watching for floodback. What do you, what do you mean by getting wound up? I don't, I don't think I understand. But you don't want the flash tank pressure to start creeping up to like 550, 600 pounds and getting away from you and blowing a relief. Well, that would, wouldn't that only happen if the if the the bypass gas valve was, was was not doing its job, correct? Or the high pressure valve, something happens with it and it opens too far, or oh, uh, okay, medium type of compressors get overloaded or shut off on oil. So you want to constantly be watching the oil on this thing too. I mean, you're going to have to add oil a few minutes at startup. I mean, probably going to, have to add some more oil in there. You're gonna you're gonna circulate oil like no other start this thing up. So once you start getting a couple systems on, I mean, go slow your first couple times. That's what she said. <laughs> I mean, I've gotten a lot more reckless with it here lately. I just do usually turn everything on because if it's going to blow up, it's going to blow up. But, um, but, uh, I absolutely cause, love your optimism. <laughs> Cause, uh, I mean, it's already a disaster probably at that point anyway. So, <laughs> so, as I'm doing this, you go, go a circuit at a time. Make sure you get no flood back. Watch it start coming down. Make sure your suction temps are getting cold. Make sure, you know, make sure you're not flooding back. You don't want anything lower than 15 degrees at the compressors. It's going to start moving, pumping oil like no other. So you want to start, you know, slowly bringing them on. You know, bring on a couple of medium temp loads and then let it run and then start bringing on some low temp loads. And then let, let those compressors start, you know, steadying out. Then bring on a couple more medium temp, a couple more low temp, a couple more medium temp. Just kind of, you know, back and forth. You know, let it let let the let the rack kind of don't overload it at once. It's gonna end up blowing a relief, or it's gonna get away from you. And then at the same time, you're checking all this stuff. You're checking your drop leg pressure. You're checking your high pressure valve percentage. And what you're gonna want to do is just continue to monitor it and. Once you start pulling down the temp and everything, this is where you really got to pay attention and make sure that all your uh, EVs are functioning properly. Make sure they all the case controllers have the right valve program, excuse me, the right steps. You know, make sure everything is uh, looking good on that side. You're not flooding back. Just keep a you know, real good eye on it. And then, you know, you're going to top off your final charge. And then you're going to sit there and wait for all the oil issues to start happening as soon as it gets hot. <laughs> Why is that? Because every single one of them has the same oil issue when it's hot. I don't understand. They move so much oil, more oil when they're when it's hot because the, the turbulence is so much higher that uh, most of the oil drain solenoids and uh, separators can't keep up. Oh, uh, we're okay. Okay. Because these are, these are sling compressors. So for the most part, so they're slinging that oil all the way, way the hell around in the cup on that bitsers and yep. essentially just, that's why it's using so much. Yeah. And then same thing on the bitsers, you know, make sure your uh, Hertz is right. Cause there's a bunch of different ones. 
So make sure some of them are 25 hertz, some of them are 30 hertz, some of them for the minimum. Some of them are 60 hertz, some of them are 80 hertz, some of them are 65 hertz. Just, you know, pay attention to what it actually is. Copeland's are all 60 and uh, 25. I, I actually like the Copeland CO2 compressors. Oh, you know, I didn't even look to see what, what, what pumps it had on it. Like we yeah, have, they- uh, we have two stores and they run great. Like so, they, they don't vibrate like a fucking, like a 1965 station wagon. Are you, <laughs> are you, are you talking about the, the medium temp, the medium yep. temp, uh, Copeland's and uh, what do you, what do they have? Are they actually using the scrolls for the medium temp? Or for the, low, for the low temp? The scrolls, and they just explode nonstop. Oh, problems? Like, not a good application for scrolls. I'm sorry. Like, all these, like, smaller racks, are, they're using scrolls. Like, we have had more digital scrolls, like, DOA on startup. Like, the scroll, like, the last three racks I did, I had to beat the scroll with a, with a, uh, with a piece of wood to get it to finally stop on loading. Hmm. And then it never did it again, ever. <laughs> like all three of them did the same thing. They they locked up and uh, they would just unload constantly. And then you you fucking smack them a couple times with a piece of wood on top. And just, I don't know if the pressure just like builds up in there when they get charge. What? <laughs> well, because I so I, I I literally just put an ad up. And and now I have the perfect next Kevin quote, which is basically if it, if it's fucked up, just hit it, just hit it with a piece of wood. <laughs> no, I mean like they they've had. I mean I know Hill Phoenix has had a big issue with them. Like they've had a bunch on on, on startup stick, and then you finagle them a little bit, and they're usually on stick. But I don't know if the pressure gets built up behind the solenoid inside the scroll and just locks it up, but. Um, We've had a lot of problems with them. We've we've lost a lot of digital scrolls too. I mean, it, but it, it's on the cusp of their operating thing too. I mean, they're four ten eight scrolls. They're not CO two scrolls. Oh yeah, that's right. Because I mean, it's close, kind of, but not really. No, I get it. I get it. I mean, the pressures are are comparable. You know, the the two hundred. Well, no, not really. Not really. Was, I mean, no, no. I mean, it's less of a compression compression ratio. But I wonder what it. I mean, it's increasing the capacity by doing that, but I don't know how a scroll does that with not much of a differential. You know what I mean? Explain, explain this to me. How do you have a 410A scroll rated for RL32 oil running with a Bitzer that's rated for BKE85 oil on the same rack? What you know oil what I, goes in there? You know I've seen that happen well, with... Nobody ever wants to respond to this question. Well, it's the same thing when I've seen Carlisle's on the same rack as a, as a Copeland that they put in a Copeland satellite. I'm like, oil. I never, I, I didn't know what, what, oh yeah, that's right. They do take 32. Okay. It's, it's BK 85 is what they're putting in there, but all the cold. Well, does it, does the CO2, does the CO2, CO2 in and out? CO2. No. Hmm. So that that's one thing it becomes a nightmare with that shit. The BK eighty five, the Hill Phoenix owns like the entire stock of that shit in the U.S. Oh really? Yeah, it's a, it's a nightmare to get. The French Canadians got a ton of it in uh, in Canada. 
Yeah, so I mean, getting the oil in there, and then uh, when you go to add the oil, I don't know who. Ah, uh, that that's not me. That was you. Um, when you go to add the oil, you're gonna since it's running, you're gonna want to blow down the oil reservoir, and then blow it down to like 15 pounds of pressure, valve it off, blow it down, and then you're going to add as much oil in there as you can, and then add it back, add the pressure back. You're saying so you don't have to pump pump crazy amounts of pressure against it right yeah unless you really hate whoever uh whoever is uh doing that with you <laughs> don't don't tell them to pump it down pump and just make it, down, make it do make it that it. way oh yeah I, I had some guy who was being a real dick to me and uh i told him to go up there and add oil and tell him how to do it and i just let him uh yeah struggle with like 500 pounds of pressure trying to pump it in there <laughs> So you didn't even give him the hydraulic fucking pump. <laughs> nope. Gave the old hand pump. Would the been. old yellow jawbreaker. <laughs> but no, that that's that that's like the basic startup. Like you want to just you you your your biggest thing is watching the flashing pressure, watching the discharge pressure, making sure you're not overloading the compressors in the flood back. And then you're going to want to just watch it until it comes down. I mean, the low temp, obviously, you're going to have to stage it down. I usually end up floating the suction up a little bit on the low temp before I uh, do anything. So that way it's not – obviously, your, your bigger loads, your bigger phrasers aren't going to be online. So go ahead. So give me give me the amounts. So we know that the medium temp can ride by itself, right? Um, we can run yeah. that just off the flash tank. How much load would you say that you wanted because of the case issues of actually getting them – in at the right time, how much load would you would say that you'd estimate how much that you could have potentially on the medium temp before you actually able to start the, the low temp? I mean, you could start it with just the low temp. It'd be fine. Because, okay. I mean, the, the, the flash tank's going to be your medium temp load. It's going to cycle like shit, but, I mean, it'll run. Okay. Cause I, the low so temp, I, low temp load, too, so. No, I, I get it. I just so you don't have those cycling issues. Like I've heard anywhere from thirty to forty percent. They want to, at least on the medium temp before you before you start checking off uh, uh, the low temp circuits. It depends. I mean, if you have a VFD in a low temp, it's a lot nicer. Or, I mean, most of the time the digital scroll like runs like not very good. It's just kind of all over the place. But like uh, on the uh, on the actual uh, medium temp itself. You're you're usually good, but with just starting it up like that. <laughs> I seen that picture. What's that? I just seen that picture. <laughs> um. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I'm not starting a CO2 rack up unless the whole thing's piped. I'm just not doing it. It's just, it's not getting done. I'm not rush starting a CO2 rack. I'm not rush starting, you know, skipping over steps. I, I refuse to do it anymore because it's going to end bad. I, I already know what's going to happen. It's going to end bad. Uh, I'm not starting up a rack and the CO2 rack with, with cases missing because I'm going to tell you right now, all those ball valves weep. None of them hold. They all weep. So you're not going to hold a vacuum. You're not gonna, you know, hold the pressure test. You know, you'll you hold the pressure test, but you're probably not gonna hold the vacuum. You're gonna go to start this thing up, and it's gonna be weeping CO2 out. 
So I refuse to, unless, unless it's all piped and ready to go, it's not getting started up. This, so because piecemeal, of, this piecemeal stuff never ends good. Is it because, so it's just because the, those ball valves leak. So trying to ball make sure that you did a good pressure test on the shit you just piped in just goes horribly yeah. wrong. Oh, that and the good vacuum. And uh, I mean, if the ball valves leak, now you're blowing down an entire loop and you're losing a bunch of CO2. So you're, you're going to want to just make sure it's all piped and ready to go. I mean, don't like we, I just had a store. We, we just refused. We pushed our back a week. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it. It's not ready to go. It, it is physically not ready to go. Like it has, we haven't had time to go through and do the validity checks on all the cases and everything else. It's just not happening. So it's. Oh well, yeah. I guess getting, getting everything. I mean, cause you, one thing we didn't talk about is getting the cases, uh, you know, you said programmed, yeah, but getting them all communicated, which sometimes is a major bitch. Yeah, like all these like places that like, oh, we're going to use this case controller on this one because it's Modbus and they're selling their own case controller. We're going to use this case controller. It's backnet on this one. Then we're going to use this case is going to have proprietary controls on this one. And this case is going to have some random controller that nobody's ever heard of. And uh, there's real information on it. And uh, Try to make them all talk to a 19-year-old controller. I feel like I brought up a rough subject for you. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's take a 19-year-old controller that has, like, the memory of a, a, a Nintendo Game Boy and uh, expect it to communicate with uh, stuff that was made in 2021. You just gave me another idea. <laughs> the truth. I mean, they're just pushing this stuff to the limit here. Then you got Dan Foss. Don't even make me bring up that. We still need to get Yoder on here. Wait, 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 wait. What, what control are we talking about? Because I, because I saw like they eight hundred uh, anything with an eight that they make. So the new seven twenty six that they're using for the for the high pressure valve and the bypass valve. You're okay with that one? Actually, I have yet to use the seven twenty six yet. Um, yeah, because it's very expensive. The three twenty six A is a great controller, but. No, but I, I thought they were shying away. They were they were going to start just going yeah, to the 700. They can't get them. But I'll tell you right now, there's nobody out there that makes a better controller than Microthermal with that. They got everybody beat. The plan's down. Like they, nobody can beat them. Is it is it because of their algorithm? Like 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 how yeah, tight the control is on there? Their algorithms are better. Their their valve control is better. You know, never like they're they're. I mean, they're. I like their flash gas bypass valves better too. So, micro our uh, microthermal and and Sporlin are are you know they're they're co-owned company right because they're both owned by Parker correct. Yep. So so someone asked me uh, today I was talking to someone uh, he had a, he had a S three C that was you know he's like oh I think the PID is messed up I was like man the algorithm on that is like basically the same thing as the microthermal I don't think that it's that and then we come to find out that uh, he has a valve that I think is like three times the size of what he actually needs in there. For the for the because he's using the PWM valves, the pulsing valves, and basically it was supposed to be like less than a quarter of a ton, and this thing was sized for a little bit more than a half. So it was just overshooting like crazy, and like you could see the temperatures and the graphs that he sent me. It was going like 10, 15 degrees above what the fucking set point was supposed to be because it was just overshooting. I absolutely hate PWM with CO two. It's it is you you cannot beat a stepper like PWM absolutely trash compared to a stepper like you're, you're not gonna beat it like steppers uh, so much smoother 
Do you think? Well, let me ask you a question. If they, if they would actually use them with EPRs, yeah, I mean, but that's the problem. Like nobody, all these case case manufacturers are like, buy this because it's going to be the one size fits all, and uh, yeah, don't buy an EPR. You don't need an EPR. And then come to find out later, like all the lines in the store are shaking like an earthquake. <laughs> I had a, and if it had it had, it had EPRs on it, it wouldn't be so bad. Um, mm-hmm. I had a I had a, a customer a long time ago. Um, I was there, and and it had one EEV in a in a certain case that has multiple evaporators in there. So it had one big distributor that was fed by two suction temperature sensors, and basically the only way I can get superheat to change because, you know, we had one valve feeding both. I had to bend the line. Basically that was the liquid line to that case higher or lower. If I wanted lower or higher superheat. That's ridiculous. They don't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Has two coils, needs two electronic valves. That's just the way it is. Or if you're Hussman, you're going to sell three electronic valves for three coils. Yeah. And then you're going to sell that portion. Abortion. So the racks, the racks that I've been seeing that we're getting in for a certain customer have uh, two controllers in them. So they're using the core link for the primary, and then they have the three twenty six for a backup. That's not core link. That's a that's a Dixel. Uh, that's a Dixel product. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's their it's an iPro Genius skull, and you're probably not getting the three twenty six because they can't get them because it's like a seventeen week lead time right now. Holy shit. So you're probably getting an iPro or you're getting a 726. I'm not at the I, I I'll be interested to see how the iPro because we're getting ready to start one up. This the new iPro does. The old iPro was fuck it was absolutely horrible. The I did three startups two years ago where in the middle of startup the OEM ripped them out and uh we retrofitted them to 326 because we blew the flash tank like seven times. No matter what you did, it just it just it just I mean, supposedly it's all redone, so we'll see how it does. Um, me personally, though, like with microthermal, that their own controls. Oh my god, it's so much. You have so much better, more tuning capabilities. Well, someone that I was I was just talking to on the phone with somebody because he was having problems uh, with a rack, and you know, I think his uh, the BGV and the HPV were both actually programmed to the E2 because he found the steps were actually programmed wrong on the BGV that was causing that, that lagging where it like looks like it wasn't controlling, but it, the, the valve oh, only had 2,500 steps. That's using the iPro stuff. The iPro's mod bust into the E2. Oh, okay. So well, no, I mean, the, that, the, the picture he sent me was, it was straight connected to an ESR board. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't connected to the so, iPro. No, he, the iPro was using, the iPro was driving, the flash gas bypass valve and then they were using the uh esr valve to drive the high pressure valve okay. i've done that i've done it at a pinch when we burned out a, a dan danfoss 320 or 726 or seven i think it's a seven i forget what it is it's a valve driver board i i ended up burning it we ended up burning it out and then uh we ended up uh retrofitting it to an esr board temporarily so but yeah that's uh We'll probably stop right here, and then we'll, we'll go into a second half next time and uh, just go over the rest of the stuff. All right. There's a lot of little stuff. Kevin looks like he's dying inside. I'm, I'm, I've been dead inside for weeks. Awesome. All right, guys. Have a good night.
Just when you think this show is terrible, something wonderful happens. What? It ends. Oh. <laughs>